Good evening and welcome to Jewish Insights for Parshat Va'era. Today is Thursday, it is December 30th, and it's the 26th of Kisle. This week in the Parsha, we read at least the beginning of the 10 plagues. And going through the 10 plagues, we ask ourselves a vital question. Why did Hashem need to drop that supply of plague onto Egypt? How was that necessary? Was it really so important for 10 plagues? Could God have perhaps sufficed with just one? And in our studies today, we're going to discover the ultimate reason why Hashem finds it necessary to give the templates. There's a certain outcome that Hashem wants, that God Almighty wants. And it's in the verse, it's clear. But from that lesson, from that note, from that message in the verse, we are going to then develop a further idea of what kind of mission that gives us as individuals in our experience in the world. Okay, so everybody's got, hopefully they have, you have your source notes with you. Let's start immediately, we're gonna start immediately in section A with the plague messages. So the first, um, for the first for source number one, this is a selection from our Parsha. <clears throat> Let us ask, please, Moshe, can you read for us source number one? Let me, if you could please, Rabbi, let me skip to the next one. I have to print mine out. Okay. Right, okay. So then we will ask Alan, can you read for us source number one? Moses and Aaron then went to Pharaoh and said, this is what God of the Hebrews declares. Let my people leave so they can sacrifice to me in the desert. Pharaoh replied, who is God that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not recognize God, nor will I let Israel leave. That's, that's great. There's, there's honesty right there. Pharaoh doesn't realize what he's faced up against. Moses and Aaron come to him and say, hey, let, let the Jews go. And he says, I have nothing with you and with your God. Go home. And what happens next? We are in for a party. Moshe, are you ready for source number two? Still, still coffee. Still not. Okay. So let's go for Susan. Can you read, please, source two? And God said to Moses, observe, I will be the making you like, I will be making you like a God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You must announce all that I order to you. And your brother Aaron will relate it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh will then let the Israelites leave his land. I will make Pharaoh obstinate and will thus have the opportunity to display many miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt. Therefore, Pharaoh will not pay attention to you, but then I will display my power against Egypt and with great acts of judgment, I will bring forth from Egypt, my army, my people, the people of Israel. When I display my power and bring the Israelites out from Egypt, then they will know that I am God. The plagues that God unleashed unto Egypt were not hold, hold, just... Hold, hold, with us. Hold. Are you... 
Yeah, you went into source three, right? I'm in the last paragraph of three. The plagues that God unleashed onto Egypt were not just to punish the Egyptians. Oh, okay, so wait, hold, bear with me for a second. We'll get there. I have a question for all of us. All of us sitting around the table today, we are now, we now have new information. We have new information that Hashem is going to bring all of these plagues, is going to offer the plagues, going to bring the plagues upon the people. And the question that each of us, I'd like, I'd like to go around the table. Why do you think God needs to bring these plagues? What result is he looking for? So there are two questions. You can answer either. Why does God want to bring plagues? And what result does God Almighty expect he will get out of the plagues? Alan, opinion. Well, I think that the plagues are for both the Pharaoh and also the uh, Israelites. What's going to happen? I mean, they, well, I mean, they, they don't know anything about this God, right? They haven't seen any miracles or anything. So this is also to show them the power of, of God. Okay, so Alan, you're telling us, Alan, you're telling us that you reckon that the plagues are not just for the Egyptians, they're also for these, the Israelites, for the Jews who are in Egypt, who have not yet interacted with Hashem in an official way. And so now we're wondering, now the Jewish people are saying, well, if you're going to give us emancipation from some unknown God that we haven't heard of in two, three hundred years, so let us at least um, understand his omnipotence and power. Is that a fair review? That's pretty good. Okay. I will add in, I will add in a little um, comment onto that, but then I'm going to ask Susan what your thoughts are. But the comment onto what Alan said is that actually, if you remember the story, um, do you remember the story that Moses goes to the burning bush? And at the burning bush, God tells him, put your hand into your sleeve and take it out and you'll see that you get saras. And put it back in and you'll see that the leprosy goes away. Do we remember that story? Right? That happened last week, I think. Um, then the, the second episode that, that's coming to mind um, is in the, same, in the same moment, God shows him another miracle. God says, take your staff, throw it to the ground. He throws it to the ground. It turns into a snake. Then God says, okay, grab the end of the snake and it will turn back into the staff. It does so and it works. And in these two episodes, so one I, I, there's definitely a memory in my mind that with these two episodes, um, God is actually kind of giving Moses an instruction that when he goes back home, when he goes back to Egypt, he should show these signs to the Jews and the Jews will then believe him. And it's at this point that God says, oh, they're not going to believe me. Why would I? That Moses says, they're not going to believe me. You know, why should it work? And that's, that's that moment in history. So in fact, um, Alan, you raised a great point. Moses also wants to know what's going to make the Jews believe and understand the power of God. And um, and so there, so there, so what effectively happens later on? Moses shows these these exact um, miracles to the people, and hopefully they are influenced. Susan, give us some thoughts. Why do you think God wants um, to show the uh, to show the to show these miracles to sh make these plays? Well, once he wants the trust of people. You know, you need to trust your leader. He's got to 
prove to them that these there there are valid reasons for leaving and what these reasons are and to show to them plus the egyptians people plus the pharaoh that that these these plagues will continue and escalate because he is making after each one he's just making pharaoh mad and he is going to so um it's it's to prove that they that god has the power he's also wanting the trust i was and the full cooperation i just think in modern day if this is to happen here you know would they would they would they take Mel, Moses to Bellevue or down to Grady in Atlanta? You know, it's like, what are you thinking? Mm -hmm. But um, that's my spin on it because these people at, do, at this time, do they know that they, that, that Jacob has been told that he's, there's going to be 400 years of misery. Do these people know that their lifespan is in this 400 years of misery and enslavement and there's going to be something better at the end? Do they, are that, are they aware of that? So they are aware of that. And, and um, the, I don't remember where I read this, but it was kind of like a, um, you know, like a pep talk that parent gave to child every day or every season saying, it's going to come a time where God is going to take us out. The God of our, grand, our forefathers Remember that the Jewish people are remembered for not having changed their, their, the way of their speech, um, their dress, and, um, and their names. They remained very strong in who they were. And they did this by continuously talking about where they came from and that they knew they were going to get out. They knew it wasn't going to last forever. I'm going to bring everyone's attention before I ask um, for, uh, for more views on this. Take a look at the last words of source Two, the last words of source two, the paragraph starts, when I display my power and bring the Israelites out from Egypt, then here are some focus words. They will know that I am God. So the question is, who's going to know that I am God? And why does God, who's saying this statement, why does he find it necessary? Why does he need this? Why does he want this? What does he want? What does he want? My friends, what does God want? Any comments? What does God want? Reb Well, I, I, think, I think that last sentence in source two is God's rejoinder or response to the last sentence in source one. Pharaoh saying, I don't recognize God. I think it's the same. It's translated recognize, but I think, I think it's still the verb to know. Um, Pharaoh says, I don't know this God, nor will let Israel leave. And at the end of source two, God says, oh, you will, you will know that I'm God. <laughs> um, so I, I, it seems like he's directly addressing and uses the same, the same terminology that, that Pharaoh used. Okay. So, so I'm hearing, I'm hearing you say that this is kind of like a, a retribution. You said you don't know me. Now, now you're going to see how powerful I truly am. 
yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure I would call it retribution, but that uh, um, God is acting on behalf of the Israelites, and He's going to show Pharaoh that uh, that um, He's going to show Pharaoh that it's within His power to to do exactly what He says. And you may think you don't know me, but you will. In the right. insurance in the insurance field, it would be the equivalent of putting you on notice. You know, um, you may not be aware of this, but I'm letting you. I am letting you. I'm putting. I'm giving you notification, orally, verbally, written, of what this what this issue is. So now you know, and and you're aware of it. I don't think he needed to say, you know, just to come around and say, I am God. You will listen to everything I say. And if you don't, you're going to uh, get the worst plague and everything's all over. I think it was his opportunity to show in a level of escalation that he is a merciful one and that there's these were his uh, stages of escalation, uh, an opportunity to say, look, if you're not doing what I need you to do or what I want you to do, this is what's going to happen. And when they failed to reply, then he said, okay, now this is what's going to happen going all the way. And then upon the last one, he did once it was already decided that they were going to be obviously set free. They prohibited the Jews from celebrating this uh, miracle that happened. Am I correct? Um, or is it, it's another perspective. It's no, another perspective, which is that, like, as every step of it goes, as every play goes, we right. there's more, there's more, um, like, it's getting stronger. It's getting right. harsher. Yeah, and there is somewhere in Medrash which um which um relates how every one of the plays was like the offense of a siege, but what like what a siege would feel like if a country would be under siege. Or a city on the siege, what that would experience like, and there's a correlation between each one of them. Um, so, with with all of these like good ideas, let's take a look at source number three, and then um, and then source number four. These two are going to bring us into a new space in this conversation. There's something that Hashem wants, there's something that God Almighty wants from the plagues this is a means to an end and we need to identify what the end is what will be achieved by dropping this amount of terror and inconvenience on to the people let's take a look uh, source number three let's get who are we up to alan alan already read moisha can you read number source, source number three source number three the plagues that God unleashed onto Egypt were not just to punish the Egyptians, rather it was to make sure that they will know that I am God, that God should be revealed in Egypt, and revealing God in the depths of impurity can only be done by breaking Egypt with plagues. Okay, so why plagues? Plagues are violent, plagues are destructive, why do we need to do plagues? Well, the impurity present in Egypt is so bad that in order to have a certain outcome, we must break it. We must get rid of it, dispose of it, destroy it. Then from the ashes can show, can shine a whole new revelation, a whole new something. 
The code word again features in this sentence. Um, they will know that I am God, right? We're looking here for something very specific and it's been identified. We're looking for the people to recognize. We're looking for the world to recognize. Ani Hashem, I am God. And so there's a lot of a lot of moves that God is doing in order to come to that outcome. Let's take a look. Source number four. We'll um, push this just uh, one step further. And this this um the the name the quote that we're about to read. It's the Rebbe is speaking here, but the Rebbe is, is quoting the Abarbanel. Now, Don Isaac Abarbanel lived in 14, between 1437 and 1508. And he was one of the greatest Jewish statesmen who played an important part in European history, uh, while also being a great scholar, a Bible commentator, and a philosopher. And he was the last, the last of the long line of great Jewish leaders and heroes of the Spanish Golden Age. And that's Don Isaac Abarbanel. And someone told me recently that rumor had, that there are two rumors associated to him. One of them is that he drew the maps that Columbus used to get to America, or that came to map America. And there is another rumor that is that he was on the boat with Columbus. Neither of them can I prove. Um, if you'd like to write a thesis on it, I will <laughs> give you my blessing. Okay, but here's source number four. Let's go. Where are we up to? Shmuel, did you read yet? No. Okay, off you go. The Abarbanel explains that Pharaoh denied the existence of God when he said, I do not know God. And he also denied the fact of divine providence, that God watches and guides all creations by saying, who is God? He also denied that God could change nature according to his will by saying, who is God that I should obey him? He meant to say, what power does this God have? Hence, there were three categories of plagues. The first three, blood, frogs, and lice, were to prove the existence of God. The second three, wild animals, pestilence, and boils, were to prove how God watches over everything in the world. And the last four, hail, locust, darkness, and the death of the firstborn, were to prove that God's ability to change the nature of the world. Thank you, Reb Shmuel. So we've got Abarbanel divides up the plays into three groups, each one to serve a different purpose. And with each of these groups, we have an ultimate goal. And that is um, that Pharaoh has denied God. He said, this, who is this God? I don't know who he is. And so now God is showing, you want to know who I am? Let's take a look. I'll give you these three categories and you'll see how in everything, it's only me. It's only Hashem. And so he does, blood, frog, and lice. And that, that shows that there is a God. And then the next three, that shows that Hashem is watching over everything. And the last four, that Hashem is able to change the nature of the world. In each of these instances, in each of these groups, Hashem is showing his ultimate power, his ultimate control, over the world as we know it. But ultimately, the 10 plagues are in order to spread the knowledge of God, to spread the presence of God, to spread the awareness of godliness. So in the lowly state of, of Egypt, what Egypt was, so thoroughly sunken 
in travesty and in mayhem and in, and in not goodness. So there, the plagues were necessary to break it. But the message that the plagues are trying to teach Egypt and the world remains relevant throughout all time, throughout history. Because it is a Jewish value to disseminate tradition and morality and belief in God to everyone, not only to Jews. It is a Jewish value to teach the presence and the knowledge and belief of God to everybody, not just for Jews. Susan's got a question, go for it. This may sound, I mean, this may sound, I don't know. It's kind of what he's doing is, it's a preemptive strike and the target is a, a civilian population as opposed to just targeting the, you know, the Pharaoh himself and his armies. He's, he's targeting a civilian population. And then, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Japan. I'm thinking of the strategic bomb, the strategic bombing of millet of, of, um, factories, which were a complete failure versus firebombing. And then the, which was a, was a success because it was targeting civilians. And then ultimately it was the atomic bomb. And then it was, it was um, surrender. That's bringing the war to an end I'm just, I, I'm having this correlation. If it's, a, if you think I'm wrong, it's just that it, to me, it's, it's targeting once again, a civilian population that does not have any control over the um, policies of their leader, such as the, um, the Pharaoh. Does that sound too off the wall? So not off the wall. It is definitely targeting a civilian, um, a civilian population. Um, just on like on a on a justice level, you know, you may wonder like how can how can God take out innocent people and hurt innocent people um, in an attempt to show to show uh, to show His presence, to show His His being, and to show and to perhaps even to give retribution. And the big answer is, and it's kind of a simple answer, but it's, it's definitely true, is that there weren't any innocent people in Egypt. And I I say that like I'm. The understanding based on the Talmud and the Medrash that I have read is that every person in Egypt was celebrating and making the most of the, um, the suffering of the people, of the Jews. Um, similar to, to, uh, to you know, Nazi Germany, in a way that, there, yes, there were many um, young and, and naive people that were swept into the fervor of it without fully understanding what they were engaged in, without taking into consideration everything that was happening. But at the same time, the whole population lived off this. The, the nation of Egypt, aside from being sunken in, in, in depraved ways of, of um, I, don't, I don't know uh, the correct words for these kind of things, but sins that wouldn't be mentioned at, at your dinner table, um, and, and of course, things like witchcraft and idolatry, both of those that are that are that deny God's presence. But 
they was they were they were making um you know they they had a genocide going the whole nation did and so there isn't really an innocent population in the Egyptian realm of things in in this story because of the nature of what was happening there at the time with the um with the plagues there so with the plagues that are happening Hashem has a specific interest he wants that the people should know God why does Hashem want that the people should know God because it's important it's important that the world know about Hashem it's important that everyone knows about Hashem and um, if you think about think about Abraham Abraham the first Jew what did he spend his time doing Abraham is known as the father of monotheism. Abraham went around the entire world teaching about Judaism to everybody. Whoever would listen to it, Abraham traveled and he taught. And if anyone listened, he was there. He himself went through a, a 40, 50 year struggle of trying to identify who, were, who and what is the omnipotent creator of all. Of all. Until later on in life, in, the, in his early 70s, he discovers the, the one God. But as soon as he, he, he's got that, he becomes this, um, this great proselytizer, a teaching. Now, what happened to all of Abraham's students, by the way? If Abraham spent so much time teaching and he was such a masterful communicator, where are all of his students? The truth is that his students didn't maintain. They didn't manage to keep it on. They were excited because of Abraham, but they didn't keep it as their own thing. But with all of this, with, with recognizing that Abraham had spent so much time going out there and teaching about monotheism and one God. With recognizing that the purpose of the 10 plagues is for God's name to be known and recognized by everybody in the world that he is so powerful and strong. What's the lesson for you and I? What do we take home from all of this? Because effectively, if, if you hopped off right now, what would you go home with? What message would you go home with? And, that, and the message is, and we're going to discuss this at, at kind of at length in the next section, but the, the message is that um, the message is, is on a question. Do we have the moral responsibility to disseminate belief in Hashem, in God, and basic moral values to all of humanity? As Jews, what kind of social responsibility do we have to the entire world? They say, tikkun olam. Tikkun olam means to fix the world. What does fixing the world mean? Does fixing the world mean saving unfortunate people from unfortunate circumstances? Or does fixing the world perhaps mean teaching the world about the presence of its creator? Teaching the world about the importance of understanding and having connection to the Holy One. So this is, the this concept it might be new, I don't know, but here it goes. There's something called the seven Noahide laws. Put up, pick up your hand if you've ever heard of the seven Noahide laws. We have. Okay, a couple of us have. All right. So the seven Noahide laws are commandments that are that um, were commanded to non-Jews, unlike the 613 commandments, which are commanded only to Jewish people. Now, six out of the seven were commanded to Adam, and the seventh which is about animal cruelty, was given up the covenant that Hashem makes with Noah after the great flood, when they're first allowed to kill animals for food, because before that, everyone was vegan unless they were breaking the rules. So 
what are the seven Noahide laws. So number one, there is a prohibition to serve any other God, and the commandment is to believe in one God. Number two, there is a prohibition to blaspheme, blaspheme God's name. Then number three, you're not allowed to kill. Number four, not to, uh, not to commit immoral marital behavior. Number five, not to steal. Number six, not to eat a limb that was torn off any living creature. And this one was the one communicated to Noah. And finally, number seven is the commandment of establishing courts of law to enforce moral behavior in, in the society. So in a way, we can divide these, these seven laws into two groups, into two categories. One of them is a belief in God. We have to recognize God and believe in him. And then the other one is to create a, a society of a civilized lifestyle. Now, I just dropped perhaps something on you guys that we that people didn't know. Um, effectively, what comes out of these seven Noahide laws is a whole um, a whole pile, a whole pile of uh, this is just seven categories of mitzvah, but in each one there's more um, there's more that comes with it. And in fact, there's um, there's a lot of effort to be done in this regard. Let's take a look here in section B. We're going to discover. This, uh, um, the section is called the self-censored mitzvah, and we're going to see um, we're going to see there's a, the, the big question is, hey, like I've never heard of these seven OI laws, and even if I have, I've never heard of anybody telling anyone else to keep them. Like, what, what's expected for me? Do I need to now go to all my non-Jewish neighbors, knock on their door and say, hey, you know, you've got seven and you've got to keep them all, and if you don't keep them, then someone might come and lop off your head. Like what is, what do I need to do? How do I engage with this new information? So that's what's coming up in section B called um, the self-censored mitzvah. Why were the Noahide laws forgotten? Let's start, um, let's ask, uh, Alan, can you read the first two paragraphs? Alan, we can't hear you. Yeah, can you hear me now? Mm-hmm. You're gonna have. Uh, oh, okay. I thought I lost it there for a minute. All right, hang on. Maimonides writes: Moses gave the Torah and its commandments specifically to the Jewish people, as the verse states, "An inheritance to the congregation of Jacob and to all Gentiles who wish to convert." As the verse states, "You and the convert shall be alike." But a person who does not so desire is not compelled to accept Torah and the commandments. However, Moses relayed, relayed God's command to compel all people of the world to accept the commandments which were given to the children of Noah. This raises the question, why don't we find discussions of this matter in the halachic response? Being a clear-cut directive of Maimonides, there is no doubt that Jews engaged in this practice in previous generations. That being the case, questions undoubtedly arose regarding its implementation. What level of coercion is necessary, for example? So why is this topic absent from halachic literature? Okay, so this is important. The big, biggest question that anyone can ask is, hey, I've never heard about this stuff. How come when I read through the entire Jewish library, it's nowhere to be found? And that brings us to section. this section, no need to endanger yourself. 
Let's get Moshe. Can you read for us, please? No need to endanger yourself, which is two paragraphs. The straightforward answer, the obligation to compel all people of the world to observe the seven Noahide laws obviously applies only when it is within one's power. This doesn't mean we need to wait until the Jewish monarchy is restored and the temple is rebuilt to fulfill this commandment. We do not need to achieve a complete sovereignty. We merely need to regain the ability to fulfill the commandment itself. In other words, if you have the ability to compel convince a non-Jew to fulfill the seven Noahide laws. The commandment applies to you. In previous generations, a Jew's life would be in jeopardy if he attempted to convince a non-Jew to fulfill the seven Noahide laws, because it would be interpreted as an attempt to mix into his religion, etc. Jewish history tells of many instances in which there were accusations and libels whenever they suspected a Jew of assisting a non-Jew to convert. The fear was to such an extent that the laws of conversion were often published with a disclaimer that the laws were only in effect during the temple era and so on. Let me keep going. Therefore, it is no surprise that Halak Responsa does not address the obligation to spread observant of the seven Noahide laws. The questionnaire and the responder were both afraid to put their deliberations on paper for fear of repercussions and therefore suffice with at most verbal discussions. So big question, how come it was not, it was never discussed? How come it's not published? Well, the obligation is only, the obligation is to compel all the other people. You don't, this doesn't need to happen during the times of the temple. It can happen at any time. And if it can happen at any time, so then it it would, you know, if you, it, it has to be done safely. You're not meant to put yourself into danger for this. Well, in the, in Christian, in, you know, in, in a Christian country like Spain in the 14th century, or, um, you know, I don't know, maybe in, in Poland in the 17th century or so, um, if you were to go anywhere and try to convince someone, hey, why don't you um, start, you know, observing this or recognizing one God or something like that, they would kill you because you were trying to mix in into their into their own religion. And, you know, of course, that was completely not allowed. And so what happens is that for the longest time, this whole notion of, um, of, of compelling other people is kind of kept in the quiet. So much so that if somebody wanted to convert, like we read, that was kept a secret. It was kept a secret and the guy, you know, if he did convert, he had to change his locale where he lived and whatever. So the next piece is, well, uh, you know, what about, um, we, we do know that there were some righteous Gentiles during the Holocaust. So by influencing Gentiles to fulfill the seven OI laws, we gain not only the fulfillment of a mitzvah, but also there's the significant personal benefit uh, for the Jewish people as well. And that is, that we, since we're all under the impression of what happened 40 years ago from this, from this speech, but back in the Holocaust, at the time we saw that among the non-Jewish population, there were righteous Gentiles and they weren't the majority, they weren't even half, but nevertheless, those righteous Gentiles saved tens of thousands of Jews. And why did they do that? Because they recognized the importance of charity and because they refused to take part in theft and certainly murder. 
and being aware of what was happening during that period of time, these uh, righteous Gentiles um, were, were fulfilling their part of the seven Noahide laws and saying, hey, I'm not going to participate in what is going on otherwise, and I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that this doesn't, that, th that it's not, you know, that, it, that I can do, uh, that I can protect people or help, etc. So and, then by being, and then by being a righteous person, they would also be granted eternal life upon leaving the world. So they didn't necessarily have to be Jewish to be granted eternal life, but they just had to at least follow the basic principles, which are the seven Noahide laws. We're not saying you have to be Jewish, but if you're not Jewish, then you should follow the Noahide laws, which would then grant you these things. Right, right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure about the eternal life part, uh, I'm happy for anyone to have it. I don't know how one gets eternal life. Uh, but yes, that's exactly it. And, and, and just by keeping, keeping to the mitzvahs, keeping to do what they're meant to do, they get their, their part of being, um, you know, of, being, of being who they were and, and making the influence they did and having a connection to God, having an awareness of God is where we're looking, um, I think. So let's take a look at our personal interest. Let's ask Susan, can you read for us, please? Our personal interest, it is... It is not our place to say what would have happened if, because everything takes place by divine providence. However, in our current reality, the Jewish people are still a single lamb among 70 wolves. And we have yet to see the fulfillment of the prophecy that the wolf will lie with the lamb. Therefore, the fact that is that it is in our own benefit to disseminate the seven Noahide laws cannot be overstated. My point is not to st stoke fear about further persecution, God forbid. This suffering shall not occur twice. It is merely an illustration of the many benefits this important matter could bring to the Jewish people in a variety of ways. In simple terms, a non-Jew may be faced with the choice between committing evil against a Jew, God forbid, or assisting him financially or however. If he will be imbued with the importance of the seven Noahide laws, it will find expression in his attitude and his behavior. Obviously, the main reason to disseminate this message is the halalic ruling of Maimonides. Moses relayed God's command to compel all people of the world to accept the commandments which were given to the children of Noah. Nonetheless, it will bring us personal benefit as well. Based on the above, there is no place to avoid spreading this message, being that is cleared it is a clear ruling in Jewish law by Maimonides in reality of this country. In the reality of this country, such a message will not be life-threatening at all. In fact, it will elevate our standing in society. Those around us will see that we don't care only for our own spiritual well-being, but that we seek the benefit of society at large. Action is the main thing. Every person should enthusiastically get involved. Excellent. Thank you, Susan. 
So this is fantastic. This is a, a message for, for every person here um, and for every Jew out there that we've, we have a mission stated by Maimonides, which is you know, um, the, one of the first codifiers of Jewish law and known throughout all of time. Just it hasn't, we haven't been able to keep it for such a long time. But now that we're able to do this and we're able to focus on it and make it a priority, this is something really important. We have, there is a, a, a that we're compelled, we're compelled to go out to our non-Jewish friends and family and neighbors and encourage them to be aware of a, of a, mono, of a monotheism, of a, a monotheistic God, of one God who created heaven and earth, one God who we, we can respect and honor and pray to and serve. This gives, this really gives every single person in the world an opportunity to engage in Judaism without being Jewish. There was, there is a time where people say, oh, you know, we, let's open up and allow non-Jews to come in and practice. And we can instead say to them, hey, there's no need to and allow non-Jews to practice the 613. Instead, let's, let's allow them to focus on the seven. That's already quite a, quite a bit. There's already a lot of information to study and a lot of things to be able to engage in for any person. And not only that, more than all of this, the Rebbe says the Rebbe, in this last paragraph, there's this message of when people will see that we are reaching out to the whole world, when people will see that we are being the light unto the nations and teaching how to connect with God and how to focus on God and how to live with God, then they will respect us as a nation and as a people even more. A fascinating, a fascinating thing and a very important thing. Before uh, in section C, titled the yacht, we will see how um, there was this occasion where the, an occasion where a Jewish person influenced a non-Jewish person, and we'll even see the repercussions that happened later because of this, something that happened um, not too long ago. I mean, this, this episode that we're about to read happened in 1982. And when we're done reading it, I'll tell you with about whom the conversation actually happened. Before we go to section uh, C, um, even though we're running late on time, does anybody have a question or comment? Alan, go for it. You're on mute, but I'm listening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, we don't have a really long answer, but what happened to the Egyptians? You know, here, 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 God did all of this stuff to them in front of them, just like he did it in front of the Israelites. So what was their response to all that? I mean, besides losing a bunch of chariots and horses. Uh, so uh, it's a great question. It's a great question. Not many of the Egyptian ma males survived this experience. Remember that they all followed the Jewish people, um, chasing after them and going into the sea effectively. And they ended up in the sea with their horses and chariots. Right. So mm -hmm. the, the, the non-believers lost out big time, right? Um, there is there is just one comment in in the Rashi on the plagues. It says that in the plague of um of the animals dying, I think. So in the, there is a comment there from Rashi who says that 
Um, this plague of the animals dying, this one was like, what animals are left? That's the question. What animals are left for the plague to hurt, for the plague to kill, and to take away the remaining animals and livestock in the, um, in the, in the country? And the answer is, well, some of the Egyptians, when they heard that there was going to be a plague of borrowed, of um, ice, of the hail, so they said, oh, if there's going to be hail, I'm going to bring my, my livestock, my flock into, um, into a covered area where they'll be safe. And, um, and so, the, so those people, the people who believed in God, they were kind of saved from one plague. But later on, there was another plague that caught them out. But in, there you go. There was, that's a moment of influence on the Egyptian of what, of who is, who is, uh, call it who is boss, but who is God and what is God and what's he capable of? And um, as said just a little earlier, the, one of the goals with the plagues in Egypt is because Egypt is so pure, impure, because it's so problematic, the only way to fix it is with a total breaking of it. Short comment. Does that kind of answer the question, Alan? Yep. Okay, yeah. let's move on to section C. Um, Reb Shmuel, will you please read for us this um, this part, please. Yes. Where is East? A story took place in the United States and in this year, which demonstrates how every single Jew is capable of spreading the message of the seven Noahide laws. There is a Jew who has been blessed by God with many possessions, among them a yacht. Occasionally, he sets out on his yacht for a vacation. When the time for prayer arrived, <clears throat> knowing that the Amidah prayer must be recited facing East, facing Jerusalem, he was obliged to inquire of the captain, where is East? In his own home, he knows where East is, but not when on the yacht. This Jew has long been taught to be proud of his Judaism in his daily life, not only among Jews, but even among non-Jews. Therefore, he wasn't ashamed, and he asked the captain to tell him which direction was East. The first time this occurred, the captain thought the inquiry was happenstance. After the question was repeated again and again, the captain asked him, you aren't a captain and you aren't a sailor. Why do you show so much interest in East? As said, this Jew has long been unashamed of his Judaism and conducts himself as a proud Jew. And he therefore told him the truth. He wants his prayers to be said before God. Being that prayers ascend to heaven through the temple in Jerusalem, it is necessary for him to face Jerusalem. He therefore needs to know where East is in order to face Jerusalem. The captain was impressed and he responded, if you, a successful businessman, to the extent that I am your employee, find it important to think about God three times a day, and not just as an idle passing thought, but rather by reciting a prayer service in which you pause all your affairs and face Jerusalem to pray properly, if so, I will also begin to think about God. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuel. So a couple of weeks later, the Rebbe said this, that comment, that story at a birthday celebration in 1983. A couple of weeks later, um, the, the Rebbe then um, gives a follow-up on that story. And the Rebbe says, uh, you know, I expected that after telling the story that, uh, that people would say, hey, so what was the outcome? What happened to the, um, to the sailor? What happened to this captain? What's the next part of this episode? So uh, since nobody asked about it, the Rebbe went ahead and investigated on his own. And then he goes and tells everyone the story. And he says in the second paragraph of the positive result, he says, I've found, I've since found out that indeed the captain told the owner of the yacht that ever since their conversation about prayer to the creator of the world, he has, the captain, at every opportunity when he meets his family and friends, he speaks to, he has spoken with them of the need to think about God 
and prayed to him. The captain concluded by saying that if all people in the world would pray, would think about the creator and pray to him, the world would not look like the jungle it does today. And this is, this is what has happened so far. And because one mitzvah leads to another, it is certain that when a non-Jew um, speaks to another about the creator of the world and the resultant need to conduct oneself honestly and properly, it will lead to another mitzvah. The second non-Jew will speak to a third, who will speak to a fourth and so on. And you can imagine the impact of that one exchange of the captain with the Jewish fellow. Now, is anybody wondering who this Jew with the yacht might be? Noah. Noah. Okay, Noah. <laughs> Very good. The, um, the Jew in discussion was actually David Chase. Anyone remember David Chase? Chase Manhattan? The TV, the TV producer or something? Like something like that. Some massive millionaire related at one point to J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank. Um, they, yeah. Right? And if you, if you search him up, um, and it's certainly if you search up his connection to Chabad, you will discover that he was um, a close uh, friend of, of Chabad and of Chabad of New Jersey and became a massive supporter of Chabad internationally and the Rebbe personally. Um, and so it, it was, um, the Rebbe actually once asked him if he, could, if he could recommend a birthday present. If he could recommend to David Chase what a birthday present what birthday present Chase could give to the Rebbe. And Chase, of course, said yes. And the Rebbe asked him to put on tefillin every day. And it was following that, it was pursuant to that, that um, this story of David Chase praying in the boat becomes, um, becomes a topic of conversation. So to conclude all the whole, to conclude the whole conversation, in the 1980s, so the Rebbe started speaking about the responsibility of the Jewish people to spread the message of the seven Noahides. The Rebbe often emphasized that it, is a, that it is a belief in God that leads a person to behave in a civilized, uh, in a civilized manner and which allows a society to establish itself on moral foundations. And, and an example of that, of how, how we need to be influencing people is found in this, in, this, um, in, this video, in this video recording of a story that happens with a Rabbi Zalman Grossbaum, who is the Chabad Rabbi of Ontario, Ontario, Canada. What's the story? That he was going to go visit the Prime Minister of Canada. And so he decided that as, as, a, uh, as a gift and appreciation to the Prime Minister, he would give the Prime Minister a really nice piece of Jewish Judaica. What kind of Jewish Judaica would you give a Prime Minister? He was going to give a Kiddush cup. He thought he'll get a beautiful silver Kiddush cup, he'll wrap it up, he'll put it in a box, and I'll give it to the, to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister will love it. He wrote this all in a report to the Rebbe, to which the Rebbe responded to him, what is the Prime Minister going to do with the Kiddush cup? Like, why does a non-Jew need a Kiddush cup? So the Rebbe says, better would be to give him a prayer book, a siddur, with an English translation. And then when he opens up the prayer book, the first prayer in the prayer book is Moda Ami the Panacha Melachai Vakayam. I um, I accept your presence and I know that that you have given me life. That's the first prayer in the prayer book. Um, he would recognize immediately the Prime Minister as soon as he opens the book, he finds an, a prayer that's not um it's 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 kind of generic. It doesn't it's not um it's not dependent on who you are, where you come from, what religion you are. Everybody recognizes. 
that God has given me life. And it's that, and so that's the Rebbe's suggestion to Rabbi Grossman, give a prayer book to the prime minister. And, um, and this is an example of how we as Jews can have an influence on non-Jews. Whenever we meet someone, we can either have something to give them, a piece of paraphernalia, like a, a paper, you know, a list, or, or, or raise the topic. Did you know? Did you know that, <clears throat> that a, it's a good thing to have a just society? Did you know that God wants that every person should not be cruel to animals? Did you know that God wants that we should have a, a moral family system and in our lives? Like these are all did you knows that we can easily raise with other people. And in that way, we can share with others how there is a constant um, presence of God that's always around us. We can even tell them there's one God who created heaven and earth. People want to know. People are really interested. And this is the message that we can take out of this verse in, um, in the Parsha. God wants that the world should know about him. And we, as the, the nation, the, what do you call it? The nation of light. The word. We the, what's the word, Alan? We are a light unto the world. As we are a light unto the nations, that's our responsibility to the entire world. And this, my friends, is the blessing and the closing blessing for all of us. Let us um, let us recognize that Judaism is not just to be observed only at home. It's a me the message of Judaism is relevant relevant for everybody, for us and for our families and for the people all around us. Not just for Jews, it's for all of humankind. May God bless us to be successful in our work of influencing the world. Thank you for joining and see you next year.